Welcome to the Rockonomics Podcast, episode number 55. I'm your host, Dill, and this week we welcome bassist Michael Devin to the show. Michael is a New England-bred, self-taught musician who's played with the likes of Kenny Wayne Shepard, Lynch Mob, and Jason Bonham's Led Zeppelin Experience. I met up with Michael before he took the stage with Whitesnake on their Flesh and Blood World Tour, and our conversation about his upbringing, social media, and squatting in his lockout went a little something like this. yourself pretty private like i know your 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 social media you look at the last day you posted something it's like well over a year <laughs> there's not a lot about you on on the internet um do you like it that way is it purposeful i suppose that it is but i um i'm not i'm not somebody who is not um, open you know i'm an open individual i'm just not socially media you know um excitable it's a terrible sentence I just said. Uh, social media is not really my um, my go to in life. I don't I don't uh, interact with it a ton. Right. Um, I did in the beginning. I suppose like everybody else, it's like wow, look at this neat, fun thing. And and uh, um, and as you know, I mean, it's evolved into something a, a bit different. Cool. Yeah. And it has taken um, um, some of those you know I know and love kind of in a direction a different direction I think people too spend a lot of time um, comparing themselves and uh, measuring themselves and I noticed that the uh, habit is that people will wake up in the morning and they'll open their phone and they'll check their messages and you know they'll be getting the 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 daily read down of what everybody else is doing right when they wake up and then they tend to open their Instagram and they um then they start going down that. Oh, look, so-and-so is in Aruba with so-and-so. Oh, and look, this guy just won a Jaguar. Whatever whatever the story is, it's uh, it always seems like somebody's doing something that you're not. And, and um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a human being having a spiritual experience in this lifetime, and so my... Uh, my, um, my priorities are more, are more I, I would say, like... Live it. Yeah, like spiritually aligned, you know, self-aligned. Yeah, live it, be in it, be actually in it. and Because uh, I think that's the only way you can really find true joy. I don't think joy exists in um, a photograph or on, a, right. or on some kind of device. It doesn't have any uh, life essence in yeah. it, you know. So, Especially yeah. when it's people on your periphery that half you probably don't even know. You know, half you may... Have you aspired to be? Yes. Yeah. Yes, and absolutely. And that was the big thing, is you because uh, I am private in terms of you know like my personal information, like my relationships, things like this. I right. tend to to keep it private so it doesn't get sullied by other things. And yeah, I suppose when um, you know people, more people join and, and everybody gets in on it, and I would. You know, I post something about a best friend, and somebody I don't even know chimes in on it. And next thing you know, there's an argument going on on a photo that I was just saying, "Yo, I I love this person." Now all of a sudden, you know, that kind of stuff. I yeah. I, I, I shook it away. I only try to like post things that are, are kind of meaningful, right. a rainbow, or you know, a rock concert, or you know, cool shit like that. I hear you. Yeah. As I said, I had it. I had trouble finding a lot about you. So let's go back to. Uh New England. Is that where you're from? <clears throat> that is where I'm from, yeah. I'm from New England. Uh, what town? 
Uh, I'm from uh, outside of Worcester County, Massachusetts, so I'm from a town called Lemonster, Massachusetts. Lemonster. I haven't heard of that. You haven't heard of Lemonster? It's the birthplace of uh, Johnny Appleseed. Really? Yeah, John Chapman. And it's uh, the plastics pioneer capital of the world. Really? Yeah, so think about that. Nice organic apples, you know, being watered with with polluted plastic water. Reminds me Mm. of the graduate plastics. Yes. Um, So what got you into music at a... At your formative years, uh, a gateway band. Uh, yep, I have a gateway band for sure. Uh, my my big gateway band would be ACDC. ACDC. Yeah, Angus Young and ACDC and Bon Scott particularly. Yeah. Oh, so pre pre Brian Johnson. Okay. Uh, yeah. Although um, <clears throat> the first album I ever heard of ACDCs was uh, Back in Black. Okay. Um, I was still, gosh, I was maybe eleven. Let's say ten or eleven. So. My ears hadn't tuned yet to like vocals, so it all kind of sounded like the same guy, Brian and Bonham. Kind right. of, it took it took time to go. Oh, wait a minute, these guys are different guys, you know. Um, but did yeah, you have an older sibling that introduced you, or how did you come upon? I do. I have two older siblings. I have two older sisters who um, listen to rock and roll. My eldest sister um, got into it. We we all got into it really young. I don't really remember life without rock and roll music, you know. Um, <clears throat> my first cassette was Pyromania. Nice. Um, and that was a big deal. And uh, Metal Health, I believe. And um, yeah, I um, I think it all kind of hit me at that time where you start to get the inner voice starts to wake up and you start to have some kind of a self-consciousness, self-identity. You, know, you start doing that thing. You're no longer young and uh, in the mind that is anyway. And, and so... I think rock music um, immediately found a, a place in that as as a, an energy source, as an actual uh, you know uh, malleable energy source that that uh, I fed off of. And man, I mean, I was I would say I was a wild kid, you know. Okay. Uh, I would say I was a troublemaker kid. I was a little shit. Let's put it that way. Um, and I grew up in the middle of nowhere, you know. Somebody once referred to it as an old mill town. Uh, I think my, my writer friend James O'Brien did. And uh, that made perfect sense to me because that's kind of what it felt like. Right. So, uh, yeah, not a lot of clubs, nightlife, and street life. It was a lot of woods, parties, keg parties, bonfires, and, you know, the trusty uh, boombox to go with it. And okay. so music and bands and... All of that became um, essential to the experience of growing up in a place where there was really nothing else to do but wreak havoc on your neighbors. Right. You know, um, where would you have to go to see a show? Right in Worcester. Boston? We'd have to Worcester. go to Worcester, Mass, to the Worcester Central. Okay, we could go to Boston, sure, but the uh, I mean, for the big shows, it was mm-hmm. always at the Central. You know, and uh, <clears throat> yeah, I saw I saw a bunch of stuff there. Yeah, you know, my cool. first concert there was uh, ACDC, though. With, with uh, Brian. Lo- yes, with Brian. And Loudness was uh, opening. <laughs> That's so funny. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what, 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 you know, going back to, you know, having the music, you know, really touch you, what mm. manifested itself to become, I want to strap on an instrument or sit behind a kid? Um, I think that the, um, I think it was probably a, uh, the peer group I was running in. There were some uh, musicians and players in there 
Um, everybody was kind of sort of starting out. I had one friend who was pretty adept at keyboard. Um, <clears throat> my best friend, actually, and <clears throat> still is. And he had, he's one of t- ten kids, eight kids, I don't know, the Irish family, you know how that goes. So, And his, and the space in between siblings is, is vast. So his eldest brother was a full-on, you know, dope-smoking Woodstock hippie, man, and 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 then through the 70s and all of it, like, and he passed on all the eight tracks and the vinyl and everything to my friend, who then passed all of this information on to me. I mean, he really opened me up my mind to other bands that I wasn't catching at the time, because I was still just grabbing what was on the radio for rock, right. you know? Um, he opened me, my, my mind up to... Uh, Black Sabbath, you know, he gave me a paranoid cassette. I, I couldn't believe that. Um, and he gave me a, a Kansas Overture album, and I just couldn't believe that either. I mean, I got really into Prague and really into heavy, sludgy stuff um, and into high-energy rock. I loved, uh, like I said, I just loved the energy ACDC gave to, to a kid who just c- couldn't sit still. I had a hard time sitting still. Right. I like drawing and rock and roll. Those are my those are my passions. I like that. Yeah, I, mean, I, I took the drawing path, unfortunately. You did. <laughs> Good for you. Um, how did how did were you considered middle class? <clears throat> yes, I was considered middle class. Yeah, for sure. And was there any you know early financial hurdles if you did express interest in getting a guitar or a bass guitar? Was it like, well, all right, get a paper route, or how did you how did, how did <laughs> no. you first come into your instrument? Um, my my initial instrument. Um, it's interesting because uh, my uh, another friend of mine who I had I had changed schools. I'd gone from a Catholic school, which you know I don't have to explain that, an Irish Catholic school. Nine years of that into uh, for one year I went to a junior high school that was just a zoo. I, I couldn't, and it was such a culture shock for me. I could not believe what these kids could get away with and how people were behaving and, the whole, and how many kids because I had come from such a small class and right. we, we were kindergartners that were moving up together we were all growing together students and faculty this was all kinds of you know uh, um, just different classes different races different just everything Wow, you know, I was sort of in this middle class bubble growing up mm-hmm. in, in the Catholic school and in my neighborhood. It was just sort of, kind of safe and sound. And Were you already a troublemaker in Catholic school? I it was it, yes, I was smart about it though. But I got I did get busted one time um, um, stealing the key sheet to a midterm a final exam, and that was I think at the point where the school said to my parents like maybe you ought to put this kid in. Over there, you know, in the penitentiary down the street called Gallagher Junior High, you know. And that's kind of how it went. And, and I expressed to my dad uh, over the summer, I said, look, I, I want to get out of here. And it was because of this burgeoning rock and roll appetite. Like, it really had everything to do with rock music. I loved it from from every angle. I wanted to grow my hair. I wanted to wear jean jackets. I wanted to wear tight jeans. I wanted to wear pins on my jacket. I wanted to wear rock tees and be that badass I thought that those other badass kids were, right? Was there any resistance at home? Like, I wanted to do the same things. I yes. did none of them oh, yes. because my parents would just cut my hair while I slept. Yeah, I think that's why I'm sitting on this tour bus talking to you is because of the resistance, you see. Uh, the will grew because of that. And um, 
Yeah, it was not uh, welcomed um, in the home. It was, over time, I think when my parents, through attrition, realized, like, just let the kid move his 8x10 base cab into the bedroom. And, you know, they, by the time I was 19 or 20, they had completely sort of blocked out all of the noise in my home, you know. Um, it was passive. But there wasn't, let's say, encouragement. There wasn't like, let's get you lessons, let's get you a guitar, what else do you need? You know, there wasn't that. But my parents are from a different generation, you know. They were born in the 40s, and I think they looked at um, rock music and the culture as, you know, drug-addled and, and uh, um, uh, um, uh, non-intelligible, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, just not a long-lasting career. No, there's no career in that, yeah. you know. You're just headed to jail. Where we came from, those were your options were work at the factory or go to college and get a job, you know, a decent paying job, make a family, settle down, um, and uh, forget any kind of... Their, their dreams are just dreams. They're just dreams, you know. They're not... They don't manifest as reality. Uh, so I was up against all that, not just with... Uh, inside my home, but uh, in the community at large, really, you know, um, the school system and mm -hmm. uh, the parish. I, I was, you know, ordained and communed and all that. Um, and uh, my family was very Catholic. I'm Irish. I'm Irish Italian. <clears throat> so my grandparents are off the boat, and they're very Italian. And my my father's parents. Which side of the family? My mother's Italian, and my father's Irish. It's fine. Similar to me. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, you come from New York, so there's. A, a huge swath of the population um, shares this yeah. mixing. <laughs> but yeah, the, um, my, the my friend had a guitar, and and I thought uh, I was dying for a guitar because of Angus, you know. Um, and I got this guitar. I brought this kid to uh, my house one day. We were going to Catholic school together. I was still in Catholic school at the time, and I said, "I, I want that guitar that you have." He got some Sears. And uh, I said, man, you can take anything you want in this basement, you know, anything you want. I had all these toys and shit, you know. Well, he completely wiped out my basement. He's like, okay, great. But I didn't care. All I had was this SG-shaped black Magnum guitar, and I was just in heaven. I couldn't believe it um, that I had it. And uh, I was playing one day on my back porch, and I didn't have a pick. Nobody told me that it required one. So I was just sort of doing this, and... This older kid, uh, Matt, came up, and he said, Hey, uh, you play that thing like a bass. You should get yourself a bass. Uh, I had no idea what a bass was. I didn't even have an ear tuned to it yet, you know. I was like, a bass. But he was older and cool, you know. He was, still, he was wearing leathers, and, you know. So I was like, oh, bass, sure. Um, and he said, hey, it just so happens I have a bass. And I have a party this weekend. And uh, he was another kid, one of ten. So he said, uh, I have a party, and if you want to buy it, show up Friday night. And if you don't show up, then I'm going to pull a Hendrix on it. And I didn't know what pull a Hendrix meant because I didn't know what a Hendrix was. Right. Um, you know, he was going to light that thing on fire and smash it. <clears throat> I showed up to the party on my bicycle. My parents were not, didn't give me the money. Um, so I took it. I took money from my old man's wallet. For like forty bucks. Oh, like forty bucks. He wanted it with nothing. He wanted nothing. Forty. Well, you know, forty bucks back then would have been a lot. Yeah. And I and um, I still owe my dad that money. <laughs> um, yeah. I rode my bike down there. Um, I found him and all of that thick haze of hash smoke and 
and Grateful Dead blacklight posters. I didn't know any of this world, man. I was like, what the hell? Then I finally found him in a, in a in a room, you know, and people were partying down. He was actually playing his bass. He had a Yamaha and he had a big old TKO PV amp and I was shy. I was like, you know, 11. Yeah, I, I, it. I was like, hey, man. And he's like, hey, yo, 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 yo. He's like, you're here. And I'm like, yeah. I said, did you, did you do a Hendrix to it or whatever? And he said, no, no, no. And he was high and happy, right? So... I give him the money. He gives me the bass, and he gives me that. Here, take these pedals. Take these cables. Wow. Take all this shit. I rode home. I could barely get home. I open the case, and I look at it, and I said, that is the goofiest looking thing I'd ever seen in my life. What the fuck is that? to see four strings. <laughs> yes, and a big old headstock, and these big goofy tuning pegs, and I'm like, what the fuck did I buy? I had no idea. I was bummed. I was freaking out a little bit, but I was like, it's okay. He called me the next day, Matt, the, the dude, the kid, and he said, hey, what did I give you last night? He's like, you got to bring it all back to my house. I said, bring it back. I'll show you some stuff, you know, anyway, bring it over. And I did, and I gave him back half of it. He gave me one cool uh, a flanger pedal, but the, the best part of that day was that he showed me uh, how to his you know the bass lines he was working on Sweet Emotion and uh, Tom Sawyer um, and he cranked this TKO and I never and I was sitting on top of it and uh, I was like wow what is that you know hitting that low E right. just kind of really went through every cell in my body in a weird way I had a really intense reaction to the sound of a bass guitar in a room you know um, I'd never really been in a room with a bass like that before. So I I got psyched, and he was like, "What? who do you like? And I'm like, well, I like, you know, Zeppelin. He was like, forget it. Who else do you like? I'm like, I don't know Black Sabbath. So he's like, I'll show you Iron Man. And I took it home, and, you know, long story short, you know, kind of like here we are today. I, I became completely and utterly and hopelessly obsessed with this instrument. Are you entirely self-taught? I am. I, I am. Yeah. I, I, you know, sporadic. But I mean, come on, man. I'd show up to the lesson all baked. You know, like, hey, dude. You know, you know what I mean. He's trying to show me scales and like modes and like the proper. And I'm over there, like, dude, I just want to rock. And I mean, it was. It was there's, there's no patience at that age. None. <laughs> no, none. And I, and he was a great teacher, Steve. Steve Spagnola. I mean, he was just such an amazing bassist. Even, you know, outside of the greater Worcester area, this dude was so great and. Uh, patient um, and he did show me some things it's just yeah my my attention was not there my intention was to go back to my other uh, 13 year old friends and and get in the room and make all that racket we were making mm -hmm. but we were sort of already participating in the rituals that take place uh, um, amongst uh, band members or jam sessions you know we were like smoking a little bit of pot and um you know, maybe drinking some beers or something, but the focus was to try to cobble together some kind of beat, you know? Right, right. Um, and, um, and that's really where I was learning, um, but most of it, most of my learning happened in my bedroom alone, you know, just kind of on the floor. Um, I t I, at some point um, in high school, Somewhere in there, I started taking it really seriously. Some switch flipped in me, and I, I let go of my uh, peer group. I, I stopped hanging around with uh, anybody, really. I became uh, 
had any musician friends, or were you? I, I had, yes, I did, and, and I did have musician friends, and they would come over, um, or I'd go to their houses, and we'd, we'd jam on the weekends. We had those things going on, yeah, or after school. But my life was central. Uh, my, the bass was central to my life. I, it was everything I was doing. So, outside of the neighborhood kids, um, you know, my 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 uh, friend base and peer group just kind of uh, went away because the love and the desire to learn an instrument outgrew my uh, love and desire to to get high or to right. you know to party down. Right? I, I um, it got in the way. It started getting in the way. Uh, and so, yeah, I just kind of cleared the slate and went in. So at what point were you thinking, you know, there, what's the next stepping stone to be in a suburb of Boston to, yeah. what's your next move? What's your next serious move to, like, I need, I'm going to go for this as a career or just as a, you know, go for... As a life I think, path. Yeah. yeah. I think as, as a teenager, I was like, it was about fame. It wasn't about yeah. career or anything. It was just about stage, the lights, everything goes with it. Yeah. Was that a similar thing? But what yeah. what was that next stepping stone? Uh, the what ne- was the decision you had to make to do that next step? Um, it's, um, it's a series of decisions, I suppose, like in hindsight, when I look back, it's kind of, you know, um, one decision begets another opportunity, and that decision begets another opportunity, but the, the, uh, the town I was in... Um, had some really talented players. Lemonster actually does, did when I was growing up, had some really great musicians. And as I was growing through high school, you know how it happens. Those who know who can play tend to start to coagulate with those, right? And um, and so I had kind of, I was in a band and I was uh, um, playing a lot. My very first band I joined at, at 14, 15, uh, was um, a, an unbelievable resource for uh, um, education because the singer was 31, the guitarist was 29, and my and the drummer who was my bud in the band was 24, 25. So I was did you say you were 14, oh 15, God. somewhere in there. Yeah, I was just this kid. I didn't say two words, but I I was in a band. I was like, holy crap! I'm actually in a band. And it's not just my buds, you know. Yeah. hitting pots and pans we were like there's nuance here I learned so fast and so much at light speed and they were putting me on a mic and trying to get me to sing harmonies and counterpoint bass and uh, I was so fortunate I learned how to read music because um, tablature didn't exist for bass guitar in the 1980s and 90s and you started to do in the 90s but. so I learned how to read sheet music and um and that shit never panned out anyway. You buy the Zeppelin Complete. It's like, I, I wrote on it when I was a kid, I-N. It was Zeppelin Incomplete. You know, Jones would be like, and then on the, and then on notation would be like, it's like, wait a minute. Whoa, 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 whoa. So, you know, um, I learned ear and, uh, and reading. And so when I joined that band, the guitar player said, hey, you don't happen to read music, do you? Because I have all the bass lines written out. It was a godsend. That he had did that because I, I wouldn't have figured that out at that age. Was it all covers you were doing? Nope. Oh, you okay. all original oh, wow. music. Fantastic. Yes, all original music, and, and they were taking it seriously. We took it seriously. We had photo shoots and wardrobe and all that stuff. We took dance lessons. We were taking ballet lessons and stuff like this. <laughs> I mean, that at that point, I was like, "Where are we going?" But I was young. I was in high school. They were not, and I wanted to run free, and I kind of wanted to find guys that were closer to my age and, and, and sort of do the experience together. It seemed like the, all the other kids around me 
were in those types of bands. Right. And I was envious. I was like, man, I'm in with these guys who are at that age. I'm like, these guys are old, you know. Was it more of a job to them? Yes, they were make. They wanted to make it. They were hell bent on succeeding. Um, and I always had the I always had the drive of seriousness, I suppose. And I guess that came from learning how to draw as a kid. I, um, you know, that takes patience, as you know. It requires patience, concentration, and focus, and and lots of mistakes, tons of mistakes. And so the same thing I was applying to music. I was just. Letting myself fail, I'd go play shows, and they were horrendous shows. But I was just, and these guys were letting me fail, and it was really an amazing experience. And I grew like a weed uh, like that. And then, uh, you know, I, I uh, decided my dad had given me uh, basically an ultimatum. He was like, "Look, either you go to college now, or I don't pay for it anymore." And I, as I say, I come from where I come from, so I thought, well, it might be prudent of me to go get go get educated, and at least I have. Something to fall back on, as they say. Well, I'll tell you what. I've never fallen back on it, and, and I don't think I um, ever will, but I certainly have a bill that's pretty hefty on that. I got a master's degree. In what? Uh, I got my bachelor's in, um, in writing and creative writing, uh, and I got my uh, master's in um, media arts and uh, audio uh, in particular. Uh, and by the Where time, at? Where'd you go? Emerson College in Boston. Uh, by the time I went to UMass Amherst for my undergrad, um, and my best my roommate was uh, a guy I was in a band with right before I had moved out of college. I was in a band called The Road, and and I loved them. They were the, really the only band in my town that was like cool to me, even though no one thought they were. I did. I thought they were amazing, jazzy, bluesy, doorsy, like and cool lyrics, just different. You right. know, um, a little more esoteric than what was happening at the time. Um, cherry pie and, and swinging your hair around you know so I uh, I loved it and um, I joined their band as a keyboard player because uh, they already had a bass player his younger brother so I said let me just come in and play uh, keyboard and it was awesome another mind-blowing learning experience of like wow you know and I had to hit their ground running it's like we're playing a show in two weeks I'm like I okay and I we did it and I was in that band for a while it was great I moved to college with my uh, guitar player so we ended up practicing daily for hours, he and I, uh, Tom, because Tom was, he hasn't played, he quit decades ago, but he was just a really great player. Mm -hmm. And he had gone to uh, U Lowell and learned a lot about uh, theory, so he was educating me as well as I was getting my education in writing. He was uh, talking to me a lot about music. And we would sit and learn Bach pieces. I mean, literally, just sort of sit there and do these things together. And they were great. Um, but once I was done with my master's, man, I, I, uh, I didn't have a good time. I didn't have a good time doing the master's degree. Uh, yeah, how many years, so how many years of college did you do? Six? I did about a... F uh, five and some change okay. I, I did the masters super fast and I think I had a breakdown because of that I know I did I had a I had a nervous breakdown um, and I uh, why did you feel you just weren't feeding your soul of what you wanted to do yeah you were kind of you're on the wrong path I was on, on the wrong path big time and I felt like I was compromising and I was doing something for someone else. I was doing these things to please my parents, to please my community, to please 
um, all of these people that from the beginning when the rock and roll seed was planted right. were saying, you're crazy, no, 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 you'll flip burgers the rest of your life, you're going to do all this. So even though I'm getting a master's degree, I mean, a doctorate wouldn't have, wouldn't have scratched this itch. It wouldn't have given me what it is I'm actually looking for, which was uh, identity to the, to the spirit that I truly am. Um, we're all uh, programmed from the minute we leave the womb. We're programmed uh, in the macro sense and in, in the micro sense. So the collective consciousness, you know, at that time was, you know, drugs are bad. Nancy Reagan's telling you so, you know, uh, just say no. And meanwhile, I'm a kid uh, listening to things that represent that and trying to learn it and explore it. So by the time I got to master's degree, I was disjointed and kind of uh, had a sort of a fractured personality I would say in a sense like I was collegiate and, and becoming more learned in these other arts but the thing I love like the thing that really gets my rocks off is um, turning into something I play Bach on you know what I mean like what the fuck happened you know so yeah I had a full on I had a meltdown dude it wasn't good. Was there any part of you just coming from a small town that you felt like an underdog that that dream was that much harder to get? Yeah, I'll tell you another th story. Um, I went to this place when I was 14 called Straight Incorporated. I don't ever talk about this in interviews. So well, I do with Dean, but I, I went to this place called Straight Incorporated. I got um, sent there. Uh, is this a scared straight prison thing? Kind of, sort of. Okay. It's, a, it's a reprogramming, essentially. They use the same tactics they use on uh, prisoners of war, I had found out, the U.S. tactics. It's interesting. They strip your identity down to replace it with one that is more socially acceptable, you see. So a bunch of us kids, ne'er-do-wells, are sitting in this place for 14, 16 hours a day being programmed. It's just, it's just happens to be so that spiritually speaking or if you believe in such a thing of a soul or of a, of a of an essence it just so happens that I believe that my essence is strong and I came into this world with a very strong center I'm not saying it wasn't chaotic in that place it was madness but I was able to hold on to my center right. as best I could mm -hmm. uh, after two uh, after one unsuccessful escape attempt uh, that's another podcast story. Um, I, I successfully escaped a second time. And I was able to uh, appeal to my father's uh, good senses and love for his son and, you know, his you know, knowledge. My father's smart. So he went like, wait, what's happening in there? And wait, what? You know, And he, um, he signed me out eventually. You know, it, it, we, I was able to get out of there. But my point of the story is that that set me on a course in my hometown and in that small town uh, that was not what I had intended, you see. I was now uh, felt, I felt anyway, tarred and feathered. I felt like I was in the town center of, of, um, of um, ridicule and shame, right. essentially. Uh -huh. I had to go back, re-enter school. I had stayed back because I was in there for whatever six, five, six months. Oh so I lost freshman year, so I had to go back, stay back, which was humiliating, and uh, deal with um, all of that, right? Yeah. The looks, people pulling away, you can't hang out with that kid anymore, yada, 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 you know. My parents themselves, like, it, it 
did a number on us as a family, right? But uh, um, rock music seemed to be the only uh, thing. Well, not rock music, but all music seemed to be the only thing that was like my tether, mm-hmm. you know. And so uh, um, my my point to that whole thing, um, you asked me about the small town, is that I felt like I needed to get out of that small town so badly. I also felt like whatever was in me as far as dreams and goals and all the rest of it, um, that there was nothing I would not do to manifest them because I was so incredibly shell-shocked uh, about being put into that place right. and getting out, you know. PTSD, I believe they call it. I didn't know the word then, but I do now. Yeah. Right. So um, a lot of healing and a lot of, you know, life happens. I mean, I was, I was at that age, I was 14 at that age, five months at 14 or whatever, six months. So from, uh, you know, 14, 15 on, I acted as though nothing, everything was good. But again, to, to, just to make that point, I was living somebody else's story. Yeah. Cause now I'm trying to be a good citizen, right? So let me, I finished high school on time, did night school, summer schools, the whole thing, went off to do the undergrad, did the grad, did the whole thing. And eventually I just hit this wall. And I went, what the fuck am I doing? Where where am I and who am I? Who the fuck am I here, right? right? So and how did you climb out of that position? I had, a, I had an event in Boston that uh, uh, was equally as intense and, and um, life, you know, path-changing for sure. And um, after that, my time in Boston, I, I had kind of vowed to myself uh, um, that I would never, ever, ever again... Uh, compromise myself or um, my love for something for anyone or anything besides you know God Almighty itself other than that um, it's not going to happen um, so I set off man I went to California I finished my master's at a um, as a uh, um, intern at an internship at Cherokee recording studios on Fairfax Avenue Cherokee Recording Studios was the mecca, man. They made so many amazing albums in this place, and the place was just amazing. And I showed up, and you know, there's George Clinton, and there's Stuart Copeland, and you know, there's Snoop Dogg, and and all these people. All of a sudden, and I was like, wow. And I how, just, did, how did that opportunity even come to play? I mean, just a basic internship, you research what your options are, you put in an application, Yes. and that's one of those phone calls that change your life. Yes, because you're just throwing it out there, like, will you take me, will you take me, will you take me? And Cherokee Recording was like, we'll take you, it's free. And who are you hitting? Were you hitting all recording studios, yes. record companies, just I was anything music? Anything musically related, but I really, because I have the masters in audio, I wanted to get in into uh, behind the board. Uh, and so, yeah, I was getting coffee for these people, Henry Rollins and, and all these other folks, you know. Um, and it just so happened that my my boss was also a bass was a, a musician, and I was a bassist, and he knew I was. And, um, and one thing led to another. It's like I started playing with him, and then I started doing sessions, you know. And it was like it started to started to snowball a little bit in town. And How old are you at the time? I am early 20s. Yeah, early early 20s, mid mid maybe mid 20s, but um was there any financial hurdle getting there? 
Like, I just know just making the move to L.A., L.A.'s well, not cheap. No, I know it's not cheap at all. And I was lucky because I had these student loans that I tell you I still pay an egregious amount of money for them. But the student loans um, helped me get there, and my dad helped me get there. You know, my dad was a huge uh, supporter. I mean, by that time, you know, he and I, like, that, some healing had taken place. So, mm-hmm. you know, uh, by the time I graduated high school, he, he had bought me a base for my graduation, which... I thought was the most amazing thing in the world that he would do that. Right. That he understood, you know, that this is what I love, you know. Um, And uh, my dad knows more about my career now than I do. Like, he's like, oh, I see that you're going to be in Charlotte in a few days. I'm like, really? You got to have him run your social media. I see. I thought about that too, but he would overkill it, my dad. But yeah, that's kind of what happened. I, I, um, I got out there with that money, and um, and dude, I just went at it. I, I landed, crash landed in, in uh, Sherman Oaks. I would find out, and I'm like, okay, because uh, you show up in LA, and LA's fucking big. Yeah. So I'm like, where am I? I landed in Sherman Oaks. I got an apartment in Sherman Oaks, and the job was in Hollywood at Cherokee. I bought a car. I was just making it happen, little by little, and. Uh, one thing started leading to another because I was going to go home. I was incredibly homesick for New England, actually. You know, just the vibe. Right. Because being... Seasons. Yeah, and people. Being uh, L.A. people, it took me a while to get used to the to that whole kind of thing, you know, the sweaty handshake kind of thing. It's like, uh, you know, but I did. And then I will say this, because I could probably tell you the story for the next three hours, but I will say that the key... Uh, a big key for me um, in Hollywood was meeting uh, a guy named Brian Tishy, who was uh, uh, who is a drummer. Yeah, and Brian had a band uh, at the time called Ball, and I had I had been in this band. I had met this guy uh, John Karabi, um, because from Cherokee Recording Studios. I'm digressing, but from Cherokee because they weren't going to actually hire me when my internship ran out. Was that a year or six months or what was the? Yeah, I think yeah, it's probably it was whatever a semester is. So yeah, um, I uh, met and started to go out with and, and had a relationship with uh, this uh, the, the receptionist. Uh, her name's Valerie Karabi, uh, and so she said, uh, "My ex-husband's a singer in a band, and he was in Motley Crue and this and that." I said, "Oh, you know." I don't. I didn't know, but I met him, and I'm like, man, this dude's a fucking pirate. He's like, hey, how you doing? I hear you play bass, and I'm like, yeah, you know. And we hit it off, me and John. He's a Philly guy, and, and uh, man, he took me around. He took me around in Hollywood. He brought me down to the Cat Club. Started introducing me to all these other people that were just, you know, rockers in town. I was like, fuck, this is this is it, like, and. That was all happening at the same time. Valerie, um, you know, and I were out one night, and she said, I want you to go see this band called Ball. Um, Brian's band. Yeah, she's like, you'll like them, because she kept trying to get me into these bands. And because of where I come from, and maybe my own particular tastes, the hair metal genre, as it were, was not appealing to me lacking bass lines in the mix anyway you know I don't know what they play on record but a lot of a lot of non-existent bass and a lot of hairspray and spandex and I was not 
I didn't look like that guy. I, I couldn't relate to that guy. I was kind of, I was very, um, as a young kid, I was pretty pimply, so I, I was shy. I was introverted in that sense. You know, I wasn't like a cock rocker, like, yeah, you know. Um, I was more into, like, geezer butler, you know. <laughs> so, so he brought me around with all these other freaks, and I'm like, wow, this is okay, cool. She brought me to the um, show, and uh, because she said, you will like this band. It's not hair metal, it's different. It's like what you like. It's riff, riff rock, you know. And I went, man, and I was blown away. I couldn't believe it, man. And the Cat Club had this one uh, seat upstairs that was like, a, a, it had a sofa and, a, and a, like a, a big window that you could watch the band play. It was a tiny club. It was Slim Jim Phantoms Club from the Stray Cats. Oh, you could watch them play from above. And I watched Ball play from above. And I, I was just blown away by the amount of talent on that stage. Joe Travers, Brian Tishy, and I believe it was Joe Taylor on bass at the time. But I went and met him after the show all sheepishly. I was like, hey, man, I dig your music. And I realized he's as sheepish as I am. He was sort of like, hey. Like, hey, thanks. Kind of shy, not sheepish, <laughs> but shy. Like, just like, hey, thanks, man. Thanks for well. And I said, where are you from? You know? He's like, I'm from Jersey. And I'm like, yeah. I knew, I knew the act. You know, he's a homie. So I was like, oh, you're from Jersey. Oh, no wonder why you're rocking this music like this, you know? Um, and yeah, man, we just kind of hit it off like I wanted to be in that band so badly I think I just willed it man. I, I was going to say you were right <laughs> yeah I think these things come because of, you know you will these things you, you you put enough energy into them yes and it just so happened I was making some music at the time with Karabi and Brian called and uh, I was like hey dude I need a bass player really fast super fast and John's like hey look I got a guy right here like you, call this you know talk to this guy and that's how it happened. Brian said, "What you know? Can you learn some songs?" I said, "Sure." And I went down to his house at the time, and uh, we rocked me, him, and Joe Travers, my favorite drummer in Los Angeles. Joe Travers. He played with Zappa, plays Zappa, and uh, right now he's out with um, uh, Satriani on that M, or he was out with Satriani on the, on that guitar. Is it M three? Is it called whatever? All oh, right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I that was another school for me because these guys are Berkeley grads. And they're older than me, you know, and they're, and I'm just coming in with all the ambition and whatever chops I did have, they were no match to these guys. These guys were not impressed. <laughs> it was like, I got the job, got the gig, but nobody was blowing smoke up my ass. It was right. like, dude, you know, step up, you know, and again, another experience to just grow immensely under scrutinous eyes and I did and I grew and I just kept trying and trying and trying and moving forward with Brian and Brian and I were best friends I'd say you know we were pretty fucking close man like and we grew more close as the years went on um he and I both went through relationship stuff where he crashed at my place and you know a couple of years later I'm doing the same thing crashing at his place going through a, a you know bitter kind of situation at the time but um we looked out for each other a lot, and uh, that's what led me ultimately to um, the um, the Bonzo bashes with Brian, and then the um, and the George Lynch Lynch Mob gig I had was with Brian, and um, what and what what would you consider would be your first? What was your first big you know band touring gig? That would be Kenny Wayne Shepherd. How did that come about? 
uh, again, that came about because of Brian. Right. Um, and uh, Brian played record. Uh, uh, Brian played drums on Kenny's record called "The Place You're In," and somebody called him and said, "Hey, do you know any bassists? We need a band." And he threw me down there and some other peeps, and you know, because that's what you do in LA, right? You look out for your friends. You look out for your boys. You 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 try to pursue you know a gig for somebody because. It's not an easy road. It's a really hard life. Like mm-hmm. you don't have the some of those little creature comforts everyone else does. You live like a pirate. So in that sense, it's like a cold shower. You know what I mean? There's no comfort here. Yeah. You just got to do it and and love it and and find the things within it that invigorate you. You know, because 401k and medical dental and and a big old fat retirement. Yeah. Odds are for me, ain't happening, boy. <laughs> I've asked that. That's kind of you know. That's kind of what the podcast is all about. Really. And I meant to ask you too. Like, what were you? How were you keeping the lights on at the time where you were just kind of you know playing in um, ball and other bands? Yeah, I was um, because of my um, uh, tra- because of my typing experience as a as a, uh, a writer, I could transcribe TV shows like a mofo, man. So I had a high word count, and it was work at home, and it was choose your own hours. And I'm a night owl, and I was like, perfect. Wow. It's like, <laughs> every TV show you could imagine. Real world, road rules. Uh, uh, um, uh, God. You, I'm sorry, you're transcribing these? Yes. Okay, I was going to say, does this reality show have a, lo- a loose script outline, or are you yes. transcribing what they've shot? I transcribe everything they shot, and then they send that over, and somebody sits there and circles the good take. Right. Because yeah. Yeah, it's very much more difficult than you realize to get people... Okay. To say the things the right way, it's it's pretty amazing. But the at that time, um, which was two thousand and one, maybe two in those years, uh, two thousand, two thousand and one and two, I was uh, I was it was from Cherokee to Line Six. That's where I met Valerie at Line Six. So I had a full time job at Line Six. Okay. Um, but I then left Line Six and. Um, that's when I think I entered the world of truly entered the world of rock music. I let go of all uh, of that first security. I would then have to let go of more security at some point down the road. I let go of any home. I actually was sleeping and living in my lockout, which is like a rehearsal room. I was squatting in there, as you'd say. And I had a I had a, um, a membership at the YMCA. Sure, shower. Yep, and um, that's how I rolled, man. I had a car and that, and I just played and played and played and um was Kenny Wayne Shepherd the first time you did touring and you know up, up around the United Ken, States Kenny Wayne was the first time I ever got on a tour bus I did some regional stuff before that you know up in Mass and, I mean, that's, that kind of yeah. stuff yeah but nothing like um yeah Vans yeah uh, but nothing like a tour bus and, the, and a crew and I mean that was right. a that was the first one for me but but uh, there was a long gap of time in between Kenny Wayne it felt like it between Kenny Wayne and, and uh, my next touring act would be Lynch but in that time I had gotten married and got divorced and um, you know I was doing uh, other gigs just nothing prominent enough for anyone to have any interest in you know uh, so yeah I was um, I was uh, basically um, going along with Lynch Mob um, it, it, that was the gig after Kenny, you know, and I was I was doing that. Um, that for years, I was transcribing television shows. 
still with Lynch Mob too. Like that's Lynch Mob is when I is when I basically stopped doing it. Okay. Um, once I got on the road, and I was living in my lockout at the time, mm-hmm. um, uh, and I kept every day I would just tell myself like this won't be forever. How long was it? You know, I blocked that out. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It was long. It was I mean, longer than most people would endure. Yeah, it was years. Okay. Years. That's crazy. Yes, it is. I get it. It's funny. I've always wanted to meet Jewel because she's got the story about living in her car. Car. But it's like, was it a weekend? Yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. Was it a month? No, this was, this was, this yeah. went on and on and yeah. on. And uh, it affected me. Don't get me wrong. And I would go to tissue. But there's something, isn't there something a little freeing about not having, like being able to throw it all in a backpack and move? You have no idea how that felt like where I just went. Wait a minute. I can just say, fuck all this. I can literally say I'm not going to participate in this version of the game called life. I can literally say I'm going to take another path that I'm going to forge it on my own. And I'll be responsible for the repercussions and the consequences. I will take full responsibility for the outcome of my life, but I'm not going to do that anymore. So if it means, yeah, showering at a YMCA and living in a, in a, you know, in a smelly rehearsal facility, okay. Yeah. I knew it wouldn't be forever. I knew eventually either I would tire of it or something would pop. Um, and it did. And so when it finally popped, I would go to Brian's. I'd go to Tishy's like on, you know, every now and again just to like have normalcy and wake up with like sunlight. You know, there were no windows in where I lived. So these things were like delicacies, you know. And, uh, but when I hit the road with George, um, I never looked back ever. I came home from a break. I was, uh, with Georgie and, uh, I was, at the end of my month with my lockout, I was still living in it because I was on the road, you know, and I needed a roommate so badly. And I put an ad up on Craigslist, and I'm getting nothing, nothing, nothing. I got like a week left to this thing. And I'm planning ahead, and I go, well, I guess I let this go. Where do I go, you know? Oh, man. Like, that's when it starts to get really dark. Like, yeah. am I going to sleep in my... Saturn, you know, that I had at the time. And did you have a Saturn? Too? I did then, yeah. Man, that's bleak. Oh, bro. And the back tire blew out one day because I put too much air in it, and you know, it's made out of plastic. The fender blew up, like the plastic fender just went. And I came outside, I was like, what the fuck happened to my car? It was unreal. Not surprising they don't exist anymore. No, they don't. And so I um, got a response. And this person said, hey, I saw your ad. I'd like to come check it out and I said please come over and she did and she came over and she checked out the place and she was kind of walking around the room it actually was a lovely room and it, and it had skylights and it had actual quarters it wasn't just a you know four walls you know so I could live there and no one would really know you know but she said I'll take it she's like I'll take it and I'll take it and I'll have like the next here's for the next like three months So she kept saying, you know, I think, I, you know, my, my, my brother, my, my, uh, my father, you know, my father's kit. I might bring my father's kit in here. Um, I found an old, she said, I found an old um, uh, amp up in the attic that I think might have been um, uh, Jimmy's. And I'm like, 
Who the hell are you talking about? Yeah, so she leaves, and I find out I'm talking to Zoe, Zoe Bonham, who's... Oh, no way. Jace, uh, John's daughter. Right. And so I said, there, I cannot believe my luck. Like, Zoe Bonham, of all people... Um, and I felt really embarrassed because I'm like, my room is covered in Led Zeppelin because it's my <laughs> band. That's my band, you know? So I was like, fuck. So I hit her up. I go, yo, I didn't know you. She's like, I get it. I mean, everyone loves Led Zeppelin. So she um, moved in. She was my roommate. And then I had a break and one July, uh, fourth weekend, she said, hit me up and said, hey, would you like to have a play with my brother? Uh, I was like, yeah. So he texts me like, 20 minutes later and um, I should tell you I just moved into this apartment in Venice Beach I still had the lockout but I had moved into this apartment in Venice Beach that was a dream apartment I, I couldn't I couldn't believe my luck I literally could not believe my and luck this is lynch mob money that's, that's getting you there gets kind of getting me there yes and with friends who had moved out he went off got married he had this place for years him and his high school buds who all grew up and they were all kind of handing off the room and I got the master room one block behind the beach nice life was good and he hit me up and he was like mate what Led Zeppelin songs do you know so you know I'm typing out like 30 tunes right and I wait for I'm hoping I'm guessing he's gonna write back like oh oh great mate so I'll see you on Monday you know uh uh he writes back another 30 of the songs I didn't mention you know could you learn a T for one and you know all these other I'm like wow he means biz he means business so I, I did uh, fireworks are exploding all over all overhead you know down on Venice Beach and I'm I'm huddled over a, over my computer just wood shedding zap just and when I got back out on the road with George I continued to woodshed the zap and and um things were exciting I went to the rehearsal he didn't give me a yes or no he just said okay mate see you when you get back was it in the context of a, a tryout of an audition yes it okay. was a full on audition my other friend bass friend he had the gig I did not know this but he had the gig it just something was working out so um, he said so mate you know when you get back we'll maybe we'll have another play I said sure I went out with George again I made sure I was spot on for the Zep stuff, and uh, um, and Brian was already in or about to be in White Snake, so uh, I came home, played with Jason again, and never looked back on that. We we were locked in, and we were we were a team, you know, and um, it was like a dream come true. Led Zeppelin music was and is like it's like breath of life for me, man. So it was like, wow, I cannot believe this is happening, you know, this is, I gotta pinch myself here, man, like, wow, you know, and then I'm out on the road with Tish, and uh, he says to me, uh, he kept bringing it up, White Snake and bass players and this and that, and I think subconsciously I was so afraid of losing my gig with Jason, of that f flying away, me never getting on that stage to play boom, boom. You know, you're like, wow, with a dry ice machine, man. I mean, wow. So I was like, yeah, you know, uh, this other bass friend of ours, bass player friend of ours. I'm like, no, he'll, he's a shoe in for White Snake. You know, he's got it. You know, that's his gig. My gig is here. And with George, because I love George, you know. And Brian was like, totally, totally. And then one day, we're on the road, and he's got a smirk, man. And he's like, hey, 
guess who wants to see you play bass? And I was like, who? Who's talking? Tishy. Oh. So in that case, I should have been, hey, <laughs> yo, Devin, <laughs> guess, who's, guess who's curious about, about you? And I'm like, who? And he was like, Coverdale. And I kind of went like, oh, wow, okay. See, in my mind, I guess I kind of felt... It, you put it that way. Yeah, and it sort of felt bigger. It sort of felt out of reach for me, a gig like this. You know, I kind of felt comfortable in these sort of, like, smaller things, you know? Um, because of the privacy thing, maybe, or the, whatever you want to call it, the shyness thing, I don't know. Um, and so, I was like, whoa, that, man, that's, that's huge. And as it happened, uh, you know, I did what was asked. Um, can we just film you tonight? And I set up my little my little flip cam. I filmed myself play a lynch mob show. I sent it. I gave it to Tishy. He sent it. And the next thing I know, man, we're playing in, uh, in Reno with lynch mob and I'm on a flight early that morning to go meet David with Tishy. I mean, not a flight, uh, on a, in a car with, uh, Mikey to go drive up the mountain to Tahoe to meet, to meet David. So my meeting with David was, uh, the morning of a show with George that night, yeah. So it was, it was bright and early, <laughs> and I'm not an early guy, but it, I was then, man, and, and yeah. I, I How'd that go? I mean, what kind of, you know, what kind of rapport do you have when you're meeting David Coverdale? It's funny because he said the same exact thing you said when you, when we first met. Which was, uh, I haven't found a lot about you on the internet, Michael. Uh, what is that, you know? And I couldn't get two words out. I was like, well, that's just because, yes, yes, well and good. Uh, you know, and I found him to be charming and, and uh, witty and funny, man, and full of life. Um, and he liked to laugh and smile. And I thought, well, this isn't the guy I was thinking I was going to meet. I was going to meet someone a little harder and more serious and let me see what you're about. He is dead serious, don't right, get me right. wrong, but he is a very uh, a joyful dude. So we had a great morning and I realized immediately that we had a lot in common, he and I. Um, that doesn't really have to do, do much with, um, you know, um, White Snake or anything, but of personal life stuff. Right. We have quite I hear a bit. more and more uh, it's about the hang for lack of a better expression yes, it is. You, know, you need to get and it's funny I took a quote from I think the I, I, yeah you said this but it was talking about how this is a very it's a family yeah you know and and it's and that's a lot rarer than people think yes it is so I'm curious to hear not the stories but that I mean yes what's rare that there's always a little bit of headbutting or just you know if you got five guys one guy's annoying as hell or like what's the what's the dynamic that that this has that others don't I think the dynamic this has is our ability to collectively enjoy um, our company so we're a band that has no problem all of us sitting down eating going to a movie on a day off going doing anything we all kind of we're cool hanging as a group and it's not common I don't think anyway mm -hmm. especially in a group of this size uh, we're not a four piece so um, and with the tour manager you know um, and the crew and everybody I mean it's 
Um, but I'm. But you're asking specifically about the band, and and uh, specifically about the band. It's our ability to communicate any ideas, frustrations, or otherwise with each other, and not have problems. Mm-hmm. When you put someone on a stage, and you put a light on them, um, a spotlight, and everyone's looking at them, it changes you, right? <laughs> when you're suddenly the focal point of of one's attention. Uh, for entertainment purposes, um, it most certainly can um, wreak havoc on one's ego. You know, if if you're not uh, well aware of that and you're not tempering it with, with some kind of uh, life stuff that's bigger than you are. You know what I mean? And that comes in uh, real handy out here because egos out here, man. You know, they're like whales. Yeah. They're like some of them are the size of whales, man. And when you are in a band with somebody who requires a lot of space for their ego, that shit wears out on you, and uh, you stop being nice. Uh, after a few months of being in a band, you're no longer like, oh, hey, man, good to see you today. How was your... You're not like that anymore. You're like if, if you were living with someone, just like your roommate or your brother or your sister, like, hey, man, you know, can you please get that shit out of... You know, right? Like, that kind of stuff, you know? Yeah. And we don't have... A lot of that. We do butt heads as a band, without a doubt. We, all of us. I mean, it's inevitable you're yeah, going to bump heads. But, but it's not about the incident that um, is. It's not the incident itself that's important. It's the way in which it's handled and how it's resolved that it's important. And mm-hmm. this band is pretty adept at, at resolutions, which I love because the air is always clear for the most part. There's nothing hanging and lingering. That is this particular lineup. I should stress that is not the band of White Snake altogether, right. as I know it, because I've been in two. What is this? My third uh, configuration, third or fourth, right? Third configuration. T- there was Tishy Aldridge, Doug Aldridge, and then there was just, and then there was uh, just Aldridge, and then Tommy Aldridge, and then there was. Joel Hoekstra and Tommy Aldridge, so yeah, and, and then and Brian Rudy, Mike Kelly, Loopy, uh, so that three, yeah, and those were not those. Uh, I'm not going to name which which lineup, but one of those lineups was just tumultuous, man. Oh, really? Oh, funny. dude, <laughs> it was high drama, and we also were drinking like fishes, and you know what I mean. We were partying like there was no tomorrow, and that doesn't ever help, you know. So, uh, yeah. All right, I'm going to shut it down. Five questions. Last five questions. Go. And I'm sensitive to this first question because you live in LA, so it's probably hits home. But yeah. hypothetically, yep. if your house is on fire, yep. what do you run in and get that's you know part of your musical soul? My 1978 Rickenbacker bass. Nice. Yeah. All right. Question two: If I was at liberty to give you a million dollars to then give to one charity, which charity would you donate it to? I would donate that $1 million to any organization I think is effectively cleaning the oceans. Nice. Yeah. Surfrider. We'll give it to Surfrider? Surfrider. There you go. I say they're big in the... This they are. Area. Are you in Venice? Uh, I was. Okay. I, yeah, I, I'm not in either. Question three is what would your walk-up music be to the Pearly Gates? Oh, that's a great question. Or which Led Zeppelin tune? <laughs> no, I would. I'd have to go with something a little more. Uh, I'd have to go with something. I'd have to go with like Stevie Wonder. I'd have to go with like something kind of funky and maybe Sir Duke. 
That would put me in a good mood to enter the pearly gates, man. Things are things are looking good. Yes. Uh, on the flip side of that, what's stuck on repeat in hell? <laughs> oh man, great! I get to I get to say uh, okay. Um, and no offense, but uh, anything recorded uh, by uh, Poison, <laughs> I, you know. Not I love the guys, but the but the the sonically is. It's funny, the producer, I forget who it is, but he was on a podcast saying he didn't take points on the album because he figured it, it was, was going nowhere. Yeah. Brett Michaels' ambition, though, man. <laughs> All of them. Yeah. Uh, last question is, what's your... Um, I forget how I, how I phrase this, but as a, as a fan, what's your best live music experience been? The, uh, you mean... Oh, as a fan. As, yeah, a, as yeah. somebody watching. What, yeah, music. what live concert? Pink Floyd... Um, when they did, um, well, actually, I shouldn't say it was Pink Floyd. It was really Roger Waters, who did the Dark Side of the Moon in its entirety. Was one that stands out for me. Uh, Pink that rec- record. What was that? Was that out in L.A.? Yeah, it was at the uh, Bowl. It's killer. Um, seeing Jimmy Page on the Outrider tour um, was very exciting, um, and. Seeing, um, you know, the, the the early big concerts, man, like seeing ACDC for the first time, and um, and just kind of walking out of that centrum, that that arena, just you know, it's like I can't really describe what it felt like. I, I just know that I was like, I want to do that. I was so curious about what was going on uh, behind the stage, and and. You know, I always had that fascination. Like, right. what are they doing right now? Well, I wonder what I wonder what Angus is up to right now, right? Now I know. Probably just taking off his sweaty clothes and doing nothing, right? That's what we do. A whole bunch of nothing after for a while, you know? Um, but, yeah, those those were exciting. I'm trying to think of something um, recent that uh, that I had seen that, um, that I really loved. Um, I did see at Madison Square Garden, uh, speaking of Chris Cornell, I saw... Uh, Temple of the Dog play mm. and he was so good and I loved it and it, the show actually kind of brought me to tears a bit because the vibe in the room was unlike uh, any other kind of like rock concert I'd been to uh, in the sense that it well that album was born out of tragedy that well, band was born out of tragedy yes it was yeah um, absolutely and there was this I just I could just feel the love. I guess I'll put it as simple as that. There was just a lot of love in the gardens that night, and people weren't um, they were absorbed. They were enmeshed in it, and we were all enmeshed in it. And the and the whole band played great. And they were doing songs that were just so cool. Like they kicked in Achilles Last Stand. I couldn't believe that they had played Achilles Last Stand. I mean, hats off, you know. And they were doing all kinds of cool stuff. Some Bowie and. Uh, I forget who else they were rocking, but they did a bunch of covers, and I loved that show. I also saw Billy Joel at Madison Square Garden. I should tell you, I'm a big Billy Joel fan. I'm, I'm, I admit it. Most people who like him kind of won't, but I'll go on the record and say I think he's a, a great American composer. Uh, but he was awesome. He drove me to tears, too, because he kicked into Day in the Life, man. And when he kicked into that, I turned into a puddle, man. Was this part of his residency that he's doing now? Yes. For, for the end of time, I guess? Yes. Yeah. That's 
pretty amazing. It was so amazing. He was so good, man. Love him. So yeah. All right. Any other questions? Anything else? I, I wish I had two more hours with you, and I, I appreciate know, you sitting man. down with me. And uh, this, actually, I've been to a lot of just doing this podcast. Where you'll be fifty-five. I've been to a lot of backstage areas and hotels. I've never been in a bus. I'm sorry. Is this your first yeah, time? All right. Very cool. Cool, man. I'm glad. So, thanks for. Uh, yeah, to do it. absolutely, man. I'm really glad this this uh, turned out the way it did. You, you did your research, you did your homework, man, and, and I really, really appreciate that. Thank you. My pleasure. All right, I enjoyed that very, very much. Big, big thank you to Michael Devin. He's such a warm and personable guy. We were on a roll, and he was very open and generous with his time. So I'm very appreciative for that. Thank you, Michael. Now, you know his point of view regarding social media, so follow him on Instagram, but be respectful. He's also on Twitter and Facebook, but not very active, I'd admit. Uh, I'd put all my eggs in this Instagram basket if I were you. As for the podcast, we're on Facebook, Instagram, and the Redheaded Stepchild Twitter. Follow us there, and if you're so inclined, give us a rating and review on iTunes. We will not be back next week. We'll be taking a short break to get on top of what hopes to be a whole new slew of interviews with the arrival of the summer tour season. So check in on our social feeds for updates on our return. All right, episode 55 with White Snake's Michael Devin is kaput. Good night, Cleveland. Cleveland.